As I was saying, I never do try to coordinate the readings of our scripture with a sermon, and yet today something came up that directly affects what I'm talking about, and that is uh, when Robin was reading about it, the uh, easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle, and I have done a lot of study on what that actually means, and Robin was sharing that viewpoint as we did it, because we don't really understand what all the various sayings that they use in the Bible were. But we do really try hard to work for it. You probably all know that the New Testament is the best attested ancient document that ever existed. Over 5,000 partial manuscripts. I don't believe that there is a, a full manuscript of one source in existence. I'm not positive, but I don't think there is. In those 5,000 manuscripts, no two of them are exactly alike because scribes have been writing things down and there were slight changes made. As I was studying our passage for today, Acts 16, 25 through 34, you'll know about it as the, um, the conversion of the uh, Philippian jailer. And I almost did it again. I almost said Philippine jailer. Uh, and I will do that eventually. Uh, I was taken by a footnote. Now, I don't often incorporate footnotes, you know, into a, an opening of a sermon. But in F.F. F. Bruce's commentary on Acts, and I mention him because he is a very orthodox, mid-20th century. I, uh, he lived from 1910 to 1990. I use him because everybody else uses F.F. Bruce. And I will see him in every commentary that I pick up. But he was one of the most influential New Testament commentators of his time. Now, this footnote was about the differences between the Alexandria text of the New Testament and the Western text. And I don't want to get too deep into the weeds here, but there are four major lines of ancient manuscripts, and they have names. They are the Caesarean text, which I'm really not going to talk about today. There is the um, Byzantine text. There is the Alexandria text. And there's the Western text. The Alexandrian text line is the oldest, and it's called in, in commentary circles, the authentic text. Okay, and so F.F. F. Bruce's comment here that I'm working on, he said, uh, the authentic text as opposed to the Western text. And that got me going and saying, why is it the authentic text, and why is it the Western text? Anyway, of these three lines that I'm covering today, the Alexandrian line centered around Alexandria, Egypt, having the most faithful and the oldest manuscripts in existence, they believe. They believe that these were the oldest. It's a little bit austere writing. It's sort of uh, just the facts, ma'am, type of reporting of, of what went on. The Byzantine line contains the most Greek manuscripts. So it's referred to as the majority text 
of the ancient lines, okay? Because the majority of them come from the Byzantine. The oldest come from Alexandrian. And the other one we're going to talk about today is the Western text. Now, because there were the most Byzantine texts, before we had universal biblical scholarship, when the original translations of the Bible were being made into English and such, and actually it was Latin first with the uh, Vulgate, the only thing they had to work off of were the Byzantine texts. And there's nothing wrong with that. Okay? Because what these four different texts did was that scribes in certain parts of the world took the Greek, restructured it, for their area. And I don't mean changed it for their social purposes, but to make it easier to understand the Bible translations. The Byzantine text centered around what we would now call Eastern Orthodox areas of the church. The Alexandria text centered around Alexandria, and that would bring it up into Jerusalem to a certain extent in that area. The Caesarean text was the Antioch. We've been talking about the Antioch church. The uh, Caesarean uh, text was from Antioch. The Western text was not particularly Western. It's only Western if you consider Rome West. But Rome was considered West in the ancient world because um, they had a different mindset towards ministry, towards most other things than the other areas did. So we have these four texts. And now that I've been talking off the top of my head, I'm going to have to figure out where I am. The earliest Bibles, as I said, were based on the Byzantine text of the Bible. We would say the Tyndale Bible was, a King James Bible was. Every Bible was based on the Byzantine text until about 1750 when the Alexandrian texts were brought in uh, to um, modern consciousness. The Alexandrian text is what basically every one of our Bibles that you will read today, except for the King James, is based on. The NASB, the ESV, the English Standard, the New American Standard, the Revised Standard are all based on the Alexandrian text. Now, relevant to our story today, the most vivid differences between these texts comes in the book of Acts, okay, which we're studying. The Western text has 10% more material in it than the Alexandrian text or the, or the Byzantine text do. There is more of Acts in this Bible. And you might stand back and say, well, gee, that's not good. Because what is the word of God? Uh, Who's added to it? Who's done what to it? Now, the thing about the Western text is that it's also as old as the Alexandrian text. They were being circulated in the church at the same time. The austere Alexandrian versus the more verbose, more colorful, more uh, detailed 
Western text. They're going around the church at the same time. And so the question here is, why were there two versions of Acts going around the church at the same time? Metzger, a contemporary of F.F. Bruce, posits seven possible reasons for the difference in Acts for the Western text and the others. Uh, I will not go through seven. I will, because four of those have been rejected over time. They're just not relevant to uh, scholarly discussion, as though we're having a scholarly discussion. But the first of the um, reasons that are plausible is that the early church, now think about this, I have preached that, remember, as Peter, as Paul are speaking to churches, as they're writing to them, they're speaking and writing scripture in real time. But they weren't necessarily seen, all seen as scripture immediately. The first reason is that the early church did not see Acts as scripture at the time it was written. It was a history of the church. This is what it was written for. My dear Theophilus, as Luke said, you know, I'm writing this down so that you may know. Um, Because the early church did not see it as scripture, scribes felt free to add to the account oral traditions and other colorful details throughout the first and second centuries. That's the first theory. That's only a theory. I am not teaching this. But the other two possibilities involve Dr. Luke himself about why the change in Acts. One is that after Paul's imprisonment in Rome had ended, one way or the other, and I say that because Acts ends without telling us what happened to Paul. We do have tradition that says he was executed in Rome. We also have local folklore that he went on to Spain like he wanted to go. But one possibility is that Luke stayed on in Rome for several years and gave readings of his work to local Christians with additional explanatory observations that then got added to Acts and were subsequently preserved in the West as Scripture when Acts was deemed to be Scripture. The other possibility, and I like this one a lot, okay? The Acts preserved in the Alexandrian text was the first hurried draft of the Acts of the Apostles. Now remember we have explored why so, so many things are so brief. Paper, writing material, not paper, writing material was expensive. Things that we would think would be expounded on were not given a lot of detail. Uh, Luke was on the road during some of this writing or remembering it and writing it down afterwards. So the last possibility or the last suggested reason is that the Alexandrian text was the first draft. And that, editing it for Theophilus's benefit, Luke expanded with remembered details and reflection given his own lived experience of what he was writing about. 
of course, short of more manuscript evidence being found, we'll never know exactly why there are two versions of Acts. And while they differ considerably in length and detail, there is nothing that changes the message of the book in the Western text of Acts. Now, with that as an introduction, okay? Keep that all in mind because we will come back to it at the very end. Just deal with that. With that, let's read Acts 16, through tw- uh, 16 25 through 34. Um, and then we'll get into it line by line. So Acts 16, 25 through 34. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. As we saw last week, Paul and Silas had been arrested, stripped and beaten with birch rods in the marketplace, and then turned over to a Roman jailer who not only threw them in the inner prison, which maximum security by our standards, but he also had them fastened, their legs fastened into stocks. The stocks have various distances between the leg holes, the furthest apart, designed to force prisoners' hips out of joint. Very painful to be sitting on the ground this way. And also, it helped to discourage escape. I mean, if you've sat in a bad position long enough, when you stand up, you cannot walk. And uh, this is where they've been. Now, I have never suffered a caning. Okay? I just want you to know that. But it's still a legal punishment around many places in the world, uh, from Africa to uh, the Middle East. Uh, most famously, um, their uh, canings are still administered in places such as Malaysia, uh, Singapore, and Indonesia. 24 strokes is the legal maximum you can have. Just as though 40 lashes minus one uh, in uh, Jesus' time, uh, 40 strokes, 39 was the most you could give because 40 strokes was considered fatal, fatal. So let's just dance right up to the line of what you can get. I'm not positive that the Roman jailer or the uh, magistrates, the lictors who delivered the caning, um, kept accurate count or went by the Malaysian standard. So uh, 
And while, I, as I say, I haven't suffered a caning, I've had construction accidents a number of times. Uh, recently, I came back from a job and couldn't preach because of broken ribs. My first one, I broke a scaffold four stories up and uh, suffered broken clavicle and all my ribs down one side. Aaron came to pick me up from the hospital when they were getting out and uh, to drive me home. And I had to stop her on the way from Mountains Community uh, to our place in Twin Peaks. I could not stand the jolting of the road, and she was being careful. I had to drive myself home so that I could hold onto the steering wheel and see what I was going to hit. Every movement was painful. So verse 25, we see Paul and Silas who were suffering similar pain, possibly worse than I was feeling. And verse 25 says that after Paul and Silas were caned and fastened into the stocks that, quote, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners, and this is something I don't pay attention to, and the prisoners were listening to them. Okay, Not just that they were singing hymns, but that the prisoners were listening to them. Now, I guarantee that um, when I got home from the hospital with broken ribs, I was not up at midnight singing hymns and praising God. Okay? Just take that as a truism. But whether it was from pain, that they could not sleep and awake at midnight... And I'm not saying it was. What they were doing was praising God amidst their trials. Now, you might think that a dark, dank prison locked away from all eyes, that all evangelization by Paul and Silas would have stopped. But of course, you would be wrong, because while they were praying and singing hymns, it says the prisoners were listening to them. We're not told... By the way, if these other prisoners were in that inner prison with them, or if they just heard them from cells away, so we don't know if they were there together, but still Paul and Silas were ministering to them. Verse 26 says, And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaking. Now, see, we're lucky to live here in Southern California because we know exactly what they're talking about. I have, I have friends and relatives across the country, and you know, who don't know what an earthquake is. Uh, they know what tornadoes are and hurricanes are, but they don't know what an earthquake is, and they're really scared of them because of that. I won't regale you with stories of all the earthquakes I've been through since all of you probably went through these same ones too and have your own lived experiences. I'll just say that the Landers quake in about, what, 95? I felt like somebody was hitting the balls of my feet with a hammer from underneath the floor. So sharp was the quake. Verse 26 says, um, And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Um, Just this week or last two weeks, there have been earthquakes in this same part of the country and we've seen what has happened with those thousands of people killed. 
because we have unreinforced stone buildings that come apart in these kind of quaking. With the foundations of the prison shaken by such a force, you'd have expected it to collapse. And perhaps it would have if it weren't a godly earthquake. And I'm going I'm to just call it a godly earthquake myself. It was serving God's purpose. God was in control of the earthquake, having it bend to his divine will. And God's purpose here was not to free Paul and Silas from prison. And we know that, Paul, that God's hand has freed in the past in Acts alone Peter from prison. We've seen him being led out by an angel. God's purpose was not to free them from prison but to free Paul and Silas from their temporary chains so that they could set others free from their permanent bonds. Okay, God's design was not their freedom. Verse 27 says, When the jailer woke, and I, I like that line, Keep when the jailer woke, okay, why do earthquakes always seem to happen around 5 or 6 o'clock in the morning, okay? I mean, it says, when the jailer woke, um, as though when the alarm went off in the morning, he woke up to find the prison doors open and the city destroyed by an earthquake. But when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. No one sleeps through a violent earthquake, okay? Really, they, they don't. A friend of mine for the Silmar earthquake, we were in high school, had his aquarium that he was conveniently keeping above his bed come down on his head during it. My French teacher was on her way out the door to uh, get to school at 6 o'clock in the morning, turned and saw a wall of water coming over her house as her swimming pool emptied. Both of these people, by the way, thought that California was sliding into the ocean at this time. So, just throwing that out. But um, no one sleeps through an earthquake. And the jailer was undoubtedly on his way, even as the earth was shaking. As the prison doors opened, he pulled out probably a Roman short sword, because that's what they were armed with, to kill himself. Uh, the Code of Justinian 9.4.4, just in case you want to look it up, specified that a soldier allowing a prisoner to escape would receive the same punishment as the man was facing. So death by his own hands was preferable to the degradation and humiliation that would be visited upon him at the hands of his fellow soldiers. Verse 28 says, But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. It wasn't a secret to Paul, as a Roman citizen, what would happen to the jailer. So he was quick to make it known to the jailer that no one had left. And we don't know why the other prisoners didn't leave. Okay? It doesn't say that just Paul and Silas's chains fell off. It says that all the prisoners' chains fell off. 
Were they converted also by the praising and singing of Paul and Silas before the earthquake struck? We don't know. Did, did the force of Paul's personality keep them from fleeing the prison? We don't know. Uh, Luke does not go into that significant detail. Maybe he did in the Western text. Such was the testimony of the lives of Paul and Silas that the jailer instantly saw the truth of their lives. Verse 29 says, And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I don't know about you, but we keep flashlights by the side of our bed just in case this happens, you know, uh, that the electricity goes out. The jailer called for light. Upon entering, it does not say that the jailer even took a head count. It also does not say that he went and re-sequestered all the prisoners. The jailer had undoubtedly already heard around town about Paul and Silas, about their preaching, about the slave girl who went about behind them proclaiming them messengers of the Most High God. He probably knew all about them. And when this happened, I'm sure the jailer who had heard their singing and their praising God saw them as those messengers of Most High God. Such was the testimony of the lives of Paul and Silas that that was as piercing as the gospel that they preached and the jailer instantly saw the truth of their lives. Falling at their feet, he prayed, by the way, not the sinner's prayer, but instead asked the saving question. And this is the saving question. What must I do to be saved? And once again, the answer to that question is not a formula. It's not baptism. It's not a catechism that we just read. It's not diligent study. The answer is, as always, as verse 31 says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. From the thief on the cross to the foulest sinner today, the answer is the same. Call on the name of the Lord and be saved. It's said throughout Scripture. The same meaning as here with believe in the Lord and you will be saved. This is the only formula there is. The only formula for salvation is belief. And the flip side of that is the only unforgivable sin is unbelief. That is the only way that you cannot be saved is if you do not believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus, Paul tells them, and you will be saved. Verse 32 says, And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. Now Luke just gives us this brief recap. He does not tell us what what Paul and Silas preached to the household. But Paul surely told them all of Jesus' ministry, death, resurrection, which, which is called the kerygma or the teaching of the apostles. 
F.F. Bruce suggests we visualize all this taking outside the prison, outside the house. Uh, The shaking has just stopped. Uh, I don't know about you, but I get out of buildings during an earthquake. He suggests that uh, this was probably in the courtyard of the prison, near the prison well, due largely to the danger of being inside a stone building so shortly after a major earthquake. Verse 33 says, And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. The jailer on his conversion immediately demonstrates the care for others that is a hallmark of the Christian life and is not the hallmark of a Roman soldier. Roman soldiers, by the way, and I preached on this before, uh, I think I said that there were seven Roman centurions mentioned in the New Testament, all of them favorably, okay? Uh, Roman soldiers were not universally bad people. They had many great qualities, but care for others was not high up on the list. He washes Paul and Silas's injuries, probably there at the prison well, and after their wounds are dealt with, his are also. Uh, much like the Ethiopian official who asked, see, there is water. Is there any reason I can't be baptized? The Philippian jailer upon conversion, after taking care of Paul and Silas's wounds, says, can I be baptized? So the jailer also is immediately baptized. He and his household, and, and just because we're a Baptist church, I will point out here that Paul says salvation is for those who believe in Jesus And he spoke the word of the Lord to them. Baptism is for those who believe. Verse 34 concludes. Then he brought them into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Christian hospitality is the next step in the jailer's Christian walk. He immediately brings Paul and Silas into his house, which was obviously still standing, and feeds them. And if you think that he's now violating his Roman jailer's oath to secure his prisoners, he wasn't. The prisoners were with him, and he knew they weren't going anywhere. He could secure them any way he wanted. At the beginning, he took them into maximum security and strapped them into stocks. Now knowing who they are truly, he brings them into his house with his family and feeds them at his own table. And at this, his first fellowship meal, he and his whole household rejoice at their deliverance. Now I started out today talking about the three ancient lines, well four, but the three that we studied of the New Testament manuscripts, the the Byzantine, Alexandrian, uh, and the Western texts, all the, like I said, all the early Bibles are based on the very available Byzantine texts. The Alexandrian text, all the modern ones are done off of that. It's considered more accurate. 
uh, older, closer to the auto, original autographs. So the NASB, the ESB, all come from that. And as for the Western text, almost no Bibles are based on the Western texts. We have seen, and the reason this appealed to me is we have seen in, in Acts already that sometimes phrases are put in parentheses. And the explanation from uh, my sources is that those were additions in the Western text. Okay? And that's why they're put either in the... Uh, some people have them in the margins, some people have them in parentheses. And yet... Of our passage today, F.F. Bruce states, it is noteworthy indeed. Now, this is in the margin notes about the difference between the Western and the Alexandrian text. It is noteworthy indeed that in the authentic, or as I pointed out, the Alexandrian uh, text, there's no reference to this earthquake. These verses are completely missing. Okay? Gone. But here it is in the Bible. And every single Bible translation, I went through every one I could get my hands on, and with the internet, that's all of them. Every single Bible translation, whether they be early or modern, classical or literal translations, has this account. None of these verses are omitted or put in parentheses or in the margins. Now, my larger point here is that God's word has come down to us through 2,000 years, unchanged and yet marked by unknown scribes' choices in both words, word choices, emphasis on what's going on in the story. Um, the Western text is known for, for when it says, and, the, uh, and Jesus did, they will tighten it up and say, and the Lord Jesus. The Western text adds formality of a religious sort. It also, if it says Peter and Silas, or Peter and John, let's say, did something, it strengthens Peter's position by saying Peter along with John, okay? It is, I don't know the reason for it because it's not a Catholic thing, making him the first pope. It strengthens Peter's position throughout. It also adds formal religion to things that the Alexandrian did not have them to. As I said, Alexandrian text is noted for its austere, almost stark, Approach The Byzantine text, while further removed from the original autograph, still conveys the orthodox meaning of scripture in a form that appealed to Eastern Christians. And the Western text, with its additional descriptions and accounts of the acts of Paul and Silas, appealed to its Western audience, but yet is still faithful a faithful delivery of God's word. Three different lines of Greek text, copied and recopied by generations of scribes in different parts of the known world, are yet more alike than they are different. 
Scholars say that no major tenet of Christianity is in any way affected by the difference in these texts. God's word remains unchanged by human hands. It is the same with all honest modern translations, frankly. And I do say honest translations, but there are some out there by Jehovah's Witnesses and things that are not honest translations. But all honest modern translations also differ very little. Though translated for different readership, some for the ease of word recognition or putting scripture in modern vernacular, still assure that we receive what God would have us understand unchanged forever. That's what God has given us. Let's close in prayer.